your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As we're in week number seven, as we've been kind of walking through the book of Acts, not necessarily in chronological order, but we've been highlighting a couple of the main themes of the book of Acts. As we've been looking at the life of the early church in its kind of innocent, infant stage, and we've been asking the question, what has been lost perhaps over translation over the many years, and what are some things that we can rediscover about the life of the early church as the life of, of the early Christians, the followers of Jesus. And two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of water baptism in the life of a believer. And you can still, if you'd like to be water baptized next week or to participate in baby dedication, uh, you can sign up online for that. But that was two weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about evangelism, talking about sharing Uh, God's story, sharing our story, and then listening to other people's story, and that many times it's in that context that the Holy Spirit works in people's lives and draws them into relationship with Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. There are a couple things that I'd like to highlight this morning out of this portion of, of text. Just to kind of set it up for you, Paul's just being chased out of Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, for preaching about Jesus, and uh, he ends up in the city of Athens. Basically, he's there to rendezvous and just to connect up with Paul or with Timothy and Silas, and we quickly see that the Apostle Paul is not just there to connect with these two individuals because really the life of a believer is never inactive, and so even in this place that he's supposed to connect with with Timothy and Silas, there's work for him to do. There's ministry to to, uh, have had, and, and we see that um, he's making the most of every opportunity. We're going to walk through chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Verse 16 says, in Athens, so while Paul is waiting for them, so it's Timothy and Silas. Well, what do we know about the city of Athens? We know quite a few things, that Athens is the intellectual city or the center of the day. It's a pagan city. It's a place where the philosophers, the students, the intellectuals, They would gather to kind of discuss the latest trends and things that were happening in the world. We know that this city is known as a place of learning. We know that the city of Athens is is famous for being a a great place of artistry. But most of all, we know that the city of Athens is known for its idolatry and for the idols that were there. One man once said that it was easier to find a god than a man in the city of Athens. They believe that there's up to 30,000 or so erected statues or idols in the city of Athens, and people would come far and wide to worship these gods that would bring them, they believed, uh, fame and fortune and so forth. We know even about the city of Athens, you know, to some degree, you can, you can look at it and say, well, what does that have to do with State College? Well, our community is a highly intellectual community. I hope that's not like news to you. And so I think there may be a link or a parallel there, but you could come to the conclusion and say, well, I'm thankful that our community is not filled with, you know, a bunch of idols. It's not filled with idolatry. And before you would come to that conclusion, I think it's important that we scratch beyond the surface and we acknowledge that modern idolatry is much more than things that are erected or created by human hands. That idol worship is more than, than, than statues and so forth. But the definition really is uh, idolatry is an excessive devotion to a thing or to a person. It's excessive devotion or reverence to a thing or a person. It extends way beyond statues or carvings made 
by human hands, but our modern idols are diverse and many in numbers. If you really think about it, we live in a nation that's filled with things that are of excess. And so this whole portion of text talks about idolatry, and I would say that idolatry, because most of us, I'm guessing, didn't walk out of our homes this morning and bow down to a, you know, a carving or a statue or anything like that, but really idolatry is a matter of the heart, and it leads to things like pride and, and self-centeredness and greed and, and the love of possessions, and so we see this in the city of Athens. But in verse 16, it says, the apostle Paul, as he's in this city, is greatly distressed to see that it's filled with idols. Another translation says that the Apostle Paul is stirred, that he's provoked, that he's frustrated. His heart as he's walking around the city of Athens, he's grieved, he's broken for the sin and the idol worship that's taking place. He's greatly distressed because he's convinced of sin. He understands that this worship is false, that it's being misdirected. A.W. Tozer says that worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring and awe and astonished wonder, an overpowering love in the presence of the most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first clause, but which we call our Father who is in heaven. And so the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. He's listening to the worship that's taking place. He's watching it with his eyes. And he's watching people by the thousands. They're worshiping creation rather than God, the creator, the one true God. And he's distraught and he's frustrated that people that are intended to worship God are now worshiping things created by human hands. And the first piece that I want us to see from this text I think is that you and I need to rediscover in our 21st century this idea that there should be things that are provoked in our spirit, not only in our community, but when we travel in other places. You ever travel outside of the area and and you just go to a community or a small town and there's just something spiritual about it and this heaviness kind of sets on you? I've had people say at times, you know, I was at this place or I was at that place and there was just something about it. It was a dark place or there was something there. And I would submit to you that in the busyness of life and family and ministry and work and just kind of the high and by society that we live in, that if you and I are intentional with the spiritual strongholds in our city, you can become numb to them over time. And Paul realizes in the city of Athens that it's an area that is struggling, spiritually speaking. And I would say to you and I as Christians that the more we grow in our relationship with Christ, not the less sensitive we should be to these things, but the more sensitive you and I should be. It's so obvious to Ashley and I every year. We, we take a family vacation in the month of September and we go to an area called Brigantine, New Jersey. And if you go to Atlantic City, there's a small bridge that takes you to this residential island. And every year we, we go there for vacation. And it's a very nice, kind of warm, friendly area. And it's family-oriented. There's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, partiers or college students there during the summer. And so it's great for, for us to take a young family. But one of the traditions that we have is every year we, our kids really enjoy um, the Rainforest Cafe. And so we'll hop on the bridge and we'll, we'll kind of go over to Atlantic City at night. And it's in one of the Trump casinos. And so don't judge me, but we park in the Trump casino because it's there. And we walk kind of, and it's free parking. You walk through the hallway, you go down the escalator, and then the Rainforest Cafe is in that building. 
And for some reason, when I get to the city of Atlantic City, there's just this heaviness that sets upon me, spiritually speaking. If you've been there, you've probably felt this before. And you walk through the casino, you don't see people high-fiving and throwing money up in the air and laughing and, you know, smiling like, you know, they're partying, living life. You see a bunch of relatively old people. They're blowing their social security checks. The young people that you see there, they're kind of just, they're just getting by. It's amazing how our culture can take one thing and turn it into a whole other thing to try to sell it. But the reality is there's this sense of deep hopelessness when you walk through those casinos. You go down the escalator to go to the restaurant or the boardwalk area at night, and these people, many of them are drunk. They're barely able to put one foot in front of another. And there's this heaviness that sets upon us when we see the fortune-telling booths and the stores and so forth. And it's, so, it's such a stark contrast because when we, when we leave that night and we get on the bridge and we head back to Brigantine, it's like that just lifts right off of our, our spirit and you're able to just settle down and take a deep breath. But I'm sure you've felt that before. I want to challenge you as a Christian in State College, Pennsylvania, not to be deceived and say, Art, you know, thankfully, you know, Athens may have idolatry. I live in central Pennsylvania. People don't worship statues here. But I'd say to you that there is a lot of things that people have a very excessive devotion to. And that if you and I are not careful, if you and I are not intentional when it comes to our relationship with God and kind of getting out in the community Over time, you can lose a sensitivity to the spiritual strongholds that are taking place in an area. And we can talk specifically about that sometime down the road. And so Paul is seeing the idols. He's hearing the worship. But in verse 17, the spirit of God is working in him. And it's not that he's sensing this and doing nothing because our faith is not passive. Our faith is active. And it says in verse 17 that he's reasoning in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with all those who happen to be there. And so the Holy Spirit's motivating the Apostle Paul to a place of action. So he's in the synagogues, he's reasoning with the Jews and the Greek uh, worshipers that are there, the Gentile worshipers. These are people that had accepted the Old Testament as kind of the word of God. And it's more than just him in the synagogues, but he's kind of in the commonplace, the marketplace area. And we can assume that he's, he's talking to the Gentiles. Many of them are worshiping the false gods. And he's just kind of interacting and he's dialoguing and he's reasoning and he's sharing about the one true God with the people that he's interacting with. He sees himself as part of the solution. And so it's in that context in verse 18 that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with the Apostle Paul. The Epicureans believe that that God exists, but he kind of dwelt apart from the world, that he didn't create the world, so he really shouldn't be worshipped. These gods were self-sufficient, didn't necessarily need man. The tendency is towards atheism or materialism. The Stoics kind of, you know, had this pantheistic view of life that everything that happened, it was rational according with nature's design. And so they're debating Paul and they say, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, it seems like he's advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so the gospel that Paul is sharing is so contrary to what these people have heard, for what these people have understood, that they believe that he's advocating for foreign gods. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. 
This place is known as Mars Hill. It's the high court of Athens. One author describes it. He says, it's like the Harvard Cigar Club and the Supreme Court rolled together in one. And so they pull him out of this marketplace. They bring him to the high court. And you've got to get this picture in your mind. The Apostle Paul's standing on this rocky hillside. It's roughly 350 to 400 feet high, not far from the Acropolis and the marketplace. And so now the Apostle Paul's standing before these highly intelligent people. These are the influencers of the day. He's given this platform. He's got to be excited to share the gospel with them. He's standing on an area that's named after the Greek god of war, and he's given the opportunity to explain this teaching that he's been declaring. Reading on, they say to him, may we know the new teaching that you're uh, presenting. Verse 20, you're bringing strange ideas into our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. You get the sense that the apostle Paul's like, okay, absolutely, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Verse 21, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So verse 22, Paul stands up in the meeting and he says, people of Athens, exclamation point. And so you get the tone that the apostle Paul's there to talk to this elite group of people, but he's in this elevated position with the backdrop of the upper city. And he basically is coming into the city like a prophet And he says, to the people of Athens, his audience is everyone within the sound of his voice. He's in essence saying, listen up. This should be no surprise because the apostle Paul's the one that said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes, first the Jew and then the Greek or the Gentile. The first statement that comes from his mouth is he says, I see that you're very religious. Basically, in the original language, he says, you're religious to demons. I want you to see the countercultural message that the Apostle Paul speaks. I want you to get a sense of the tone as he declares over this city that's worshiping false gods. Verse 23 says, for I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. This will show you the fear that these people had of the spirit realm, because what they would do is this inscription to an unknown God was something that was commonly used on different statues and monuments. The Greeks were afraid that, you know, in their numbering of all of these gods, that if they were to leave out a God that had a very specific role that was an important deity, that if they forgot this God in their city, that this God, if he was neglected or left out, that he would come back and create trouble within the people. And so they would, it was kind of like a catch-all to an unknown God. And this stood out to the Apostle Paul as something that's just kind of ridiculous to him. And he says, you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Notice that the Apostle Paul's solution in this city is not to get a law passed. He doesn't see this as an earthly problem that, you know, there are earthly means and measures. We'll just get a a law passed that will forbid idol worship. But Paul sees this as a spiritual issue, and now he's battling this spiritual issue with a spiritual weapon in his declaration as he proclaims the word of God. And his main point is basically this religion won't save anybody. But there is a God that wants to know you. 
He's saying that religion is all about man's attempts to try to draw close to God, and you can try to do that all you want, and you fall terribly short. Religion serves so many agendas around the world today. Some use it to make money so that they can worship their real God, which is really wealth or mammon. We saw last week that Simon the sorcerer wanted to try to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit. He saw religion as something that he wanted as, as, a, as a means of control. We see people that see religion as, as power. We see murders take place. They, people feel like they're doing either God a favor or they're just trying to eliminate the competition. And the message that the Apostle Paul is saying is that religion is man's way to try to draw close to God. God's way to draw close to man is Jesus. And that these people are worshiping a God that, that they do not really know. And so he's contrasting religion versus relationship with Jesus. That religion is all about our attempts to try to reach out to God and, you know, work our way to heaven. And yet the reality is that God's way is sending his son Jesus. Religion is about diligent work, service with the hopes of rewards of eventually getting to heaven, but relationship with Jesus is about repentance, confession of sin, yielding our lives to Jesus. The power of religion is good, honest, self-determination. Relationship with Jesus is the Holy Spirit produces transformation in our lives. Religion's control is self-motivation. It's self-control, but relationship with Jesus is about allowing the Holy Spirit, to control our lives. Religion produces apathy, failure, chronic guilt, and in the end, eternal separation from God. And yet relationship with Jesus produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and and self-control. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, listen to what I'm going to proclaim to you. And I want you to see the simplicity of this message. The Areopagus sermon that Paul is about to share is kind of the most dramatic, the most complete presentation of the gospel that we see in the book of Acts, and it's to a very highly intelligent group of people. I want you to see that the Apostle Paul uses tact, but he doesn't hold anything back on the same hand, and he kind of takes the root or the axe to the root of the tree, and he addresses the spiritual condition of his audience, and he keeps the gospel front and center, and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate proof. And I want you to realize how countercultural this message is. There are a lot of people that over the years they say, it's hard talking about and sharing my faith. It just goes against everything in our society. It's so countercultural. And I, I say all the time, what's new? Really? Read the Bible. What is new about that? You'll see it time and time again in this message that the Apostle Paul is sharing. But there are a couple of things that you need to realize before we get into these points. I believe that the motivation is the Apostle Paul knew the truth. He understood the reality that God wanted to have relationship with these people. He understood that the idolatry had no ability to protect people. This idolatry had no ability to provide for them. And it certainly wasn't the solution for sin in their lives. He understood the truth of God's word, that that truth could set these people free. And he was exposing the deception of the day. But truth played an incredibly important part. We also see that the Apostle Paul, there's this unction or this motivation of the Holy Spirit. That it's more than Paul speaking head to head. But the Holy Spirit is speaking through 
the Apostle Paul as he's empowered by the Spirit. And then we see the, the Apostle Paul had a genuine encounter with the love of God. That is, he's speaking to these people. He's not hating on them. He's not judging them. He's not talking to them in, in, a, in a rude way. He's declaring. But on the other hand, he realizes that there's a God that loves these people as Second as Corinthians talks about the love of God constraining us. But then the final thing is that I believe that he was jealous for God's glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I'm the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to the idols. Paul's watching this idol worship that's being misdirected, and there's just something in his spirit that's saying this worship was designed, it was intended to be for the one true God. Look at the main points that he shares. They're so simple. And yet so many times when we want to share our faith, we want to try to complicate things. And I would say to you, we've got to get back to the simplicity of the gospel. You've got to rediscover this. I'm one that believes you've got to have deep theology. You've got to be a student of the word of God. You don't hear me share tons of personal stories because my stories have no power. God's word has power. But if you and I are not careful, please don't misunderstand me that you can get become so wrapped up in Bible study that it transitions into biblical idolatry if you're not careful. That you can become so focused on history and studying God's word that you miss the reality that God's word was intended for you and I to experience the God of our theology. That it's more than just Bible knowledge that you and I are to be people of Bible experience, that those things are to run together. There are a lot of people that are so driven to God's word and they study it and they study it and they study it as if it doesn't connect with their everyday lives. And I'd say that God's word should drive you to experiences with the God of our theology. So the apostle Paul is speaking scripture, but I would say there's always power in the story of a changed life as well. There are eight, I believe, main points to this text and when you hear eight you're like man I got lunch at like 1 30 so I, 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 I promise you I will not be extensive with these but you've got to understand and rediscover the simplicity of the gospel from what Paul shares point number one is he said that God created everything verse 24 the beginning portion says the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth Now, the Greeks believed that spirit God, lowercase g, and matter, which is atoms, are both co-eternal. And now Paul is standing in front of them, and he's saying, that's absolutely untrue. I love what Pastor Dan Betzer says. He says this, he goes, you know, raw material, or he said, nothing is the raw material that God used to create everything. Well, what did he start with? Nothing. Well, he started with something. No, nothing. Paul is standing up and he's saying that there is a God that these people are ignorant of that created the world and everything in it. He created man in his own image. Man fell away from God, was separated by sin and disobedience. But God provided a way for this relationship to be restored and that this God longs to see right relationship with his sons and daughters. 
But in his declaration that there is a God that created everything, he's saying that man is answerable to that God. It's not that we create God in our image and he's answerable to us, but at the end of the day, he created all things and we answer to our creator. Point number two, he says in verse 24, that he's totally self-sufficient and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Verse 25, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He says, God doesn't need anything from mankind. He's completely and he's totally self-sufficient. This would have been shocking to the listeners that were familiar with these Greek temples. They were familiar with these places where they would worship these lowercase gods. They believed that in that worship, these gods were fed. In the worship, these gods were cared for. And I want you to get a picture of this in your mind And we're going to go a little bit deep today, but that's why the kids aren't here. This is how shocking it is to the listeners. The Apostle Paul is standing in an elevated place, and within 100 meters behind him is the Acropolis, which is the upper city. And you've seen this in pictures before. On top of the upper city were these temples, and the Pantheon was there, this massive temple. It's a great kind of cultural monument that you've seen many pictures of over the years. And so the Apostle Paul, in the backdrop, he has the upper city. He has these massive temples that are uh, on top of that city. And within one of the temples, there's this 40-foot statue of Athena. It cost 5,000 talents to build. It was this massive 40-foot-high statue of the Greek goddess that people would come and they would worship. There was a festival that would take place every four years and everybody except the slaves would gather and they would be around this statue, this goddess, this Greek goddess, because there was a ceremony where they would take the dress off and they would replace the dress. So all of these people were familiar with the temples. They were familiar with the statues. They understood the worship of the day. And it's in the backdrop of this as animals are being sacrificed. There's a cloud of smoke going up to the heavens that they're selling the meat to the left of Paul in the marketplace, and he's standing there and he's saying, God is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need absolutely anything from you. He didn't create you for need of companionship. The Bible makes it so clear in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11. Everything was created for the pleasure of God. Look out at the beautiful landscape that you'll see at Toft Trees or in two weeks when you walk out of Uh, Mount Nittany Middle School, and you see the beautiful Mount Nittany, absolutely everything you and I included was created for God's pleasure. He didn't create us out of some lack that he had or some need for relationship. Does he love us? Absolutely yes. Does he need us? Absolutely not. Paul's standing in front of them, and he's declaring at the top of his lungs, he's saying, this God is self-sufficient. Number three, he says he's the sustainer of life, that he, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Here's a humbling thought, that there is nothing that we can give God that he hasn't already given us because he is the source of all things. They're giving worship. They're paying fortunes, 5,000 talents. They would build a modern like, worship in that period of time for one talent. 
and they're spending these mass amounts of money trying to please these gods. And he's saying, no, absolutely everything you have, if you were to give it to God, God gave it to you in the first place. The fourth point is he said that he's a father to all of us. Verse 26, from one man he made all nations. That God has a plan. One translation says that literally it's God that with his fingers draws the boundaries of of nations. And him, him declaring that God is their father, he's refuting this false worship and this idolatry. The fifth thing he says in verse 27 is that God's not far from us. That God did this so that they, we, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far off from any one of us, for in him we live, move, and we have our being. This is such an exciting part of this portion of scripture. He's not talking to Christians. He's not talking to the the disciples, the apostles, the people that have relationship with Jesus. But he's looking these philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, in the eye. And he's saying that there's this God that really does want to know you. The Epicureans, they lived for the enjoyment and fulfillment. They, they believed that gods existed, but they were disconnected, that these deities really were far away. They were unconcerned with the things that were going on in people's lives. And, and to, to be honest with you, I think many people in our, in our nation today have adopted this Epicurean worldview, that there, there is a God of some fashion, but he's so disconnected with what happens in kind of the little corner of the universe called America, and certainly is disconnected with our everyday lives, and that is not found in Scripture. It's not biblical. Paul is saying that this God, it really isn't far off. Psalm 119.50, it says, those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law, yet you are near, O Lord, your commands are true. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. He's not far from anyone here today. All that needed is a heart that is looking for him and you'll find him. He's seeing this pursuit of worship to these massive amounts of gods and he's saying, that has absolutely nothing to do with the one true God. He's saying he's not far from you. Number six, he said, this God is much more than man's greatest idea of him. Verse 29, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. The idols, these things that they had designed, the statue that was 40 feet high took nine years to build, the great lengths and extents that they would go to build these idols. And, and they were beautiful, you know, from the outside looking in, humanly speaking. But Paul is saying these idols and these statues, they, they fall so pathetically short of displaying what the real glory of God looks like. It goes on later in Scripture to say that the wisdom of man is, is foolishness compared to God. Pursue him with your mind, pursue him with your hand, build what you want. But at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul says, it falls so short of really expressing what God looks like. Creation, you and I are people that God uses to display his glory. Verse number seven, 
he turns up the heat a bit. Point number seven, he turns up the heat. He says, this God that I'm talking about, the one that created the heavens and the earth, the one that's self-sufficient, he has no need of anything, the one that you think you're worshiping, but your idols fall so pathetically short of even scratching the surface of what he looks like, that this God wants to be your savior. In verse 30, it says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The Apostle Paul, you've got to see from this message, he's not holding back in the words that he's declaring to these people. He says, The time of ignorance is long gone. Jesus is the Messiah. His kingdom has come. You can't plead ignorant. You can't you know, act like you don't know the truth regarding God's requirements. What does he require? Repentance. Total and complete surrender, change of action, change of heart, change of mind, change of the posture of our heart. He says, rather than arrogantly trying to pursue what you think God looks like and worshiping whatever you think he looks like, you must humble yourself to the point that you ask for forgiveness. This God wants to be your savior. But at the end of the day, you've got to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and repent and turn from your sin. But then verse 8. So I keep saying verse 8, point 8, verse 31. He says, the man that was raised from the dead will someday judge the world. Paul's not standing there with a bunch of his friends and they're all talking about relationship with Jesus. Paul is he's in an intimidating environment and all of a sudden he's talking about the judgment of God. For he set a day, verse 31, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof to this by raising him from the dead. And if we were all honest with each other, we'd say none of us like to talk about the judgment of God, me included. But it's a critical part of what the apostle Paul is sharing. Because if we never express to people, not in an arrogant way, not in a judgmental way, not in a way where we feel like we're better than, but if we are not truthful in the reality that every person will stand before God, we simply lie to them. Talk about love, talk about grace, but the reality is that if people reject the love of God, people reject the grace of God and the mercies that the Bible says are new every morning, at some point they will Stand before him. And he's not beating around the bush that man will give an account to God. The Bible is very clear that there are a lot of nice, respectable, charitable people that do the right thing, but at the end of the day, the right thing is not going to get you a pass through the, you know, the, the, the only thing, it's access, you know, it's our name. It's access. It has everything to do with Jesus. Give tens of thousands of dollars to charities. Vote Republican on every election for the rest of your life. Build buildings, dedicate them to churches. Be polite, kind, open the door for the elderly lady. Put lots of money in the collection plate or at the kettle. But at the end of the day, if you don't have relationship with Jesus, people will stand before God and they'll give an account. 
And you and I, through relationship with Jesus, we have all things that the Bible promises to us. But he says to them, you're going to stand before God. And he shares these simple truths with the audience. The three things that I want you to see, it's just the unsettled spirit that we see in the Apostle Paul, the distress as he walks into this area full of idolatry. Pray we never lose the sensitivity to the spiritual strongholds that are in our area. Some of you would do a lot of good that if on a Friday or Saturday night you said, you know what, we're just going to walk downtown for a while and pray and say, God, would you connect my heart with what's really going on in our community? There are a lot of churches, you know, in, in cities around our country that as they grow, what they do is they have this storefront church, or they have this nice building in the inner city, and they grow and they get money, and they build this building that's kind of like two exits outside the city office.